If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. In the ESV Bibles that are here in this room, it's on page 458. Psalm 23. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Psalm 23 is perhaps the most familiar psalm in the Psalter. One commentator said that there is no psalm in which the absence of all doubt, misgiving, fear, and anxiety is so remarkable. Martin Luther said that Psalm 23 is a miniature Bible, and Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, called it the pearl of the Psalms. Now, the Bible uses many different words to describe God. It uses the word Lord or King, Redeemer. He's described as light, as wisdom, as Father, Abba Father. He's described as I Am. And in Hebrews 12, he's described as a consuming fire. But here is one of the words to describe God, which has to be one of my favorite. And that's the word shepherd. God is a shepherd. The Lord is a shepherd. And that means that we are sheep. Psalm 100 verse 3 says that we should acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. The thing about sheep is that they often stray, and they are not very smart animals. In fact, they may be even described as a little stupid. Isaiah 53, verse 6, says that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And that's really a description of us, that we're like sheep. And we don't follow, we don't walk in the way that we should, should go. We've gone astray. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So one of the implications of saying that God is a shepherd is that we're sheep. And that means that we stray. And we don't know what's best for us. We think we know how life should go. But we often don't really know. Uh, what's best for us. We are sheep. We're sinful. And yet, 
the, the big thing, there's two main things that I want us to draw from the text. And the first one is that God is a shepherd who's committed to caring for you. He's committed to caring for you. Now, in ancient Israel and in the ancient Near East, shepherds, rulers were actually considered to be shepherds. So kings were considered to be shepherds. Sometimes people spoke of them that way. They ruled people. They ruled countries. And God is a shepherd in that sense. He is a ruler of the world. He's a ruler, a sovereign ruler over all the universe. But here, the image is not only of a ruler, but also it's more personal than that. Now, before I go into that, let me just say that being a shepherd in those days was the lowest job that you could have. It wasn't a high job. It was a low job. And one commentator said that with the exception of lepers, shepherds were the lowest class, the lowest class of men in Israel. So you were with sheep all day. That's what shepherds did. They they dwelled with sheep all the day, and that meant that they were dirty and unclean and that they smelled. And actually, it was dangerous. It was very dangerous to be a shepherd. You could get attacked by lions or wild animals. You had to live with sheep 24 hours a day. It was also unending, so every season of every, uh, you know, every month, every season, every change of weather, you had to be there. Now, what's Some people may not know is that you, because you are with the sheep all the time, you couldn't actually keep the purification laws. And so one of the commentators, I forget exactly where I read it, said that the shepherds tended to be hard men. They were often regarded as liars or thieves because nobody else wanted these jobs. They were were unclean, and that meant that sometimes there are testimony was actually inadmissible in court. So the better jobs were kept for the older, the older sons. If you remember when Samuel comes to anoint a king, uh, David is with the sheep. And his older brothers are there, but he's with the sheep because he was the youngest son. He was a shepherd. And so what did they do, really, all day? Well, Tim Whitmer, who was a pastor, said that there were, and he wrote a book on shepherding. It's called The Shepherd. He actually wrote two books on shepherding. But he said there are at least four essential duties that shepherds have and had in those days. And they were this. These are the four essential duties. The shepherds knew their sheep. They fed their sheep. They led their sheep, and they protected them. They protected the sheep. So they they knew them. They knew which ones were theirs. They fed them. They led them, and they protected them. Now, that's what God wishes to do with you. God wants to know you, to feed you, and to lead you, and protect you. He wants to be your shepherd. And uh, what's very important for you to understand about this psalm is that it is not just saying that Lord, the Lord is a shepherd. 
He's out there ruling the universe. He's saying the Lord's my shepherd. He cares about me. He cares about you individually. The ruler of the universe has stooped down to get involved in the details, the messy details of your life. And how does he do that? Well, it says, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. It's not saying you will get everything you want. It's not saying you will have everything you desire because the Lord is my shepherd. That word want actually means lack. It means that you will not lack what you really need. That's what this verse is saying. I shall not lack that which I truly need. And often, there, people think, people say, well, God is my shepherd, but deep inside, they think they lack something. And uh, often, maybe in your emotional life, maybe an indication of what you think you lack. But if the Lord is your shepherd, he will give you everything that you truly need. Now, as a side note, I think it's, I'm always a little amused when, say, a very rich banker who works in on Wall Street, gets caught embezzling funds. You know, more mil- he's a millionaire already, but he gets caught for stealing more money. And I always, I, I want to ask him, well, did you really lack money to begin with? You know? And the reality is that we all struggle with the idea that we're dependent. We're sheep, and we're dependent on someone else for our needs. This verse is not saying that you're going to get everything you desire, but it is saying that you will get everything you need. And here's what, what John Calvin said about this verse. He said, those who enjoy the greatest abundance of outward good things are empty and famished if God is not their shepherd. So you can have great abundance. You can have great worldly goods, but if God is not your shepherd, if he is, if he's not the one leading you, then you will be empty and famished. Or John Newton. We just had a, an educational moment about John Newton. Uh, John Newton said that all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. We also have here a picture of rest and nourishment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I didn't know this before preparing, but sheep don't naturally like to sleep. The conditions have to be just right. And apparently, it's hard to get sheep to lie down. There are several things that can cause sheep to be scared and frightened and refuse to lie down. They hear something Perhaps in the woods, they may get afraid. There's friction from other sheep. Even things such as flies or parasites can prevent them from laying down. Or they're hungry. It's also hard to, have a sh- to get a sheep to drink from a fast-flowing river. They have to be fed by still water, slow-moving water. 
And the point is that where can you find the still water and the green pasture? Only God, your shepherd, can lead you there. And it's saying, really, without him, without the Lord guiding you, you'll never have real rest. Paul in Philippians chapter 4, 12, 4 verse 12 says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I long for that to be my attitude and contentment in whatever the circumstance. Is that your attitude? Are you content to be with the Lord, whatever the circumstance? Content, whatever the circumstance. And without the Lord as your shepherd, you'll never have real rest or real, real food. Verse 3 says that he restores my soul. And that word for soul is also the word for life. So some commentators have seen a, a correlation or a, um, a picture of the resurrection. And I, I think it's interesting what one commentator has said about sheep, that sometimes the, the fat sheep, they lay down in the grass and they maneuver in such a way that they accidentally get stuck, feet dangling in the air. And the, the sheep can't get up. And so panic and, they panic and start to paw. Blood circulation cuts off. And sometimes sheep will actually die with their legs sticking up. And the shepherd is the only one who's able to restore the sheep. I think that's an interesting picture. This is, this is a picture of our dependence upon the Lord for everything. He restores our souls. He also guides us in the right path. He guides us in the path of righteousness in his own way, in his own law, for his own glory, in his own namesake. He's also committed to doing what is best for you, even if it hurts you. Temporarily. So when it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, at the end of verse 4, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Derek Kidner, one of the Old Testament commentators, says that the rod is a cudgel worn at the belt and staff to walk with and to round up flock were the shepherd's weapon and implement. He says the rod was for defense. And the staff was for control. But then he adds something that I think is very interesting. He says, discipline is security. Discipline is security. He sees a a reference to discipline in the rod and the staff. Have you ever seen a child run in the street, busy street? A child runs out in the the street? And and you might see a a panicked mom or a panicked dad come and grab the child by the arm and take them very quickly off the road. And why? It's because the child doesn't know what's best for them. <laughs> right? Discipline is security. The parent doesn't want the child to get hurt. And so what's interesting is that 
David doesn't say, the rod, your rod and your staff, they terrify me. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that's the real hope uh, for fatherly, loving discipline, is that it would be a comfort ultimately, security. That they know they're protected, the sheep are protected. Not only that, but um, in the house of the Lord, in the house of Christ, you are an honored guest. You don't have a spot at the head of the table, that's Christ, but uh, in his house, you are honored, and this is what it says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, verse 5, you anoint my head with oil. This is a picture of a feast or a celebration. In David's culture, it was common to welcome a distinguished guest by pouring perfume on their head or putting oil on their head as a sign of love and respect that they were valued, and that they were special. In fact, that custom continued all the way to Jesus' day. If you remember the sinful woman, the woman of the city in Luke chapter 7, and it says, Behold, the woman of the city, this is Luke 7, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in, a Pharise- in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And then later, he, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil. Here was the king of kings coming to this Pharisee's house and his head was not anointed with oil. Oil was a sign of love and respect, of value. But also my cup overflows. In that culture, the host would often give a cup or a glass of wine to a guest and the guest would make sure that the glass never ran dry, that it was always overflowing. And it showed the guests that while they were in their house, they would have an abundance of provision. And so this is what it's saying in God's house, part of God's flock. You may not be served the food. You you may not be served everything you want, desire, but you will have an abundance of everything you really need. All real provision that you, you really need, you will be given and you will be honored as a as a guest, a distinguished guest. So God is a shepherd who's committed to caring for you. That's the first thing that I want you to know. But the second thing is that Christ is really the good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. And here's what it means for you. It means that Christ knows all your needs and he's a compassionate provider for you. One of the things that fascinates me about Jesus' ministry in the Gospels is that people, crowds, just flock to Jesus. They just flock to him. They follow him around. They drop what they're doing. And there's a place in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus sees a great crowd, and it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And so what does he do in Mark chapter 6? Jesus feeds them. He teaches them from the Word. He teaches them from the Word of God. And then he takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. And it says that they all ate, and they were all satisfied. Jesus is a compassionate provider for you. Additionally, he is also the perfect sacrifice for your sins. Deuteronomy 17.1 says that you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which there's any blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So you're not to sacrifice a sheep that has blemish. And yet what Isaiah says is that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he went there as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sheep, the perfect lamb in your place. And that's why Peter would say in 1 Peter 1 that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So only if the Lord Jesus is your shepherd can you know that he has made a sacrifice for your sins. You do not have to be afraid of punishment for your sins. And you can know that he will lead you to abundant life. He says in John 10, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ is committed to giving you abundant life. He wants to know you, to feed you, to lead you, to protect you. All of those things that a good shepherd does He has done for you and is committed to doing for you and will do in you. Christ is also with you in all the dark seasons of personal conflict. So in verse 5, when it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Can you imagine a battlefield, a scene of battle? I happen to enjoy war films. I love studying World War II history. I love studying uh, military history. But could you imagine a battlefield in which, right in the middle of the conflict, one of the soldiers takes out a table and sits down to eat while all the, the conflict, the swords and the, the guns are raging. And he sits and dines as if it's, he's in perfect peace. Spurgeon would say that when a soldier is in the presence of his enemies, if he eats at all, he snatches a hasty meal, and away he hastens to the fight. But observe, nothing is hurried. There's no confusion. There's no disturbance. The enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares a table, and the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. I 
I don't know all the circumstances. I probably don't even know some of the circumstances of, of your life. But in the midst of conflict, you are able to have perfect peace. You are able to have peace in the midst of the battle. And life is a battle. It's a real battle. There's spiritual warfare going on. So how do you get peace? Well, Christ is committed to giving it to you. He will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. But that's not all. Because Christ is with you, you can face death without fear. In verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why are people afraid of death? Why do you think people are afraid of it? There's no question that people are afraid of it. So why do you think people are? One reason is that death takes from us the relationships with the people that we love. It takes those people away from us. Right? Doesn't it? It strips us of the things that have made life meaningful. And, of course, many people live with the uncertainty of what comes after death. But here's the reality, that the more security and the hope that you've placed here on earth in this life, the more fear you will have of death. And Jesus Christ came as a perfect priest to help you. To overcome even that fear, Hebrews 2, verse 14 says that he shared in flesh and blood, he partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has, had, has the power of death, and that, that is the devil, and deliver those, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's came, he came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Even that great enemy, death, Christ is vanquished. And through him, he can vanquish your fear as well of that great enemy. Derek Kidner, commenting on this verse, says that only the Lord can lead a man through death. All other guides turn back and the traveler must go on alone. Only the Lord can lead you through death. All other guides will turn back. It doesn't say that you're never going to have terrible things happen or that you're never going to die. But when you do, this is what he says, I will fear no evil. And when Jesus Christ went to the cross... He endured the wrath of God so that you would not have to fear the wrath of God when you die. The last verse gives us a picture of what the end may look like. I shouldn't say may, is to look like for all of those who are the Lord Jesus' sheep. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We had a few educational moments while we were singing hymns, so I want to give you an educational moment. Some people don't know, don't know um, that the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of our, it, it is our primary, our standards for our church, it's written in the 1640s. But uh, some people don't know that in the 1640s, when the Puritans were uh, in power, in 1642, Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth, the Parliament banned plays in England. And you might find that kind of funny. Why would they ban plays? And the reason they banned plays is because most people thought, most Puritans thought, that they were sinful. They were worldly. They, um, they weren't fit for God's people. And I, I want to if you will permit me the liberty, I want to read you from a play that was probably banned at that time uh, because I think it gives you a contrast for what this verse is saying. And I don't, I don't quote from it because I, I want to be um, eloquent. I'm just... I quote from it because it shows you the comfort in this passage. And it comes from William Shakespeare, from As You Like It. And it's spoken by Jacques. And there's a moment in that play where Jacques says that all the world's a stage, that all the men and the women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being in seven stages, or excuse me, seven ages. Then he goes through the ages. He says he's a helpless infant, a whining schoolboy, the emotional lover, the devoted soldier, the wise judge, the old man. And then he says this, the last scene of all is, that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness in mere oblivion. Son's teeth, son's eyes, son's taste, son's everything. And that word sans means without. So without teeth, without eyes, without taste, without everything, that's how life ends. And you go into oblivion. And what I want you to see here is that's the exact opposite of what this psalm is saying. Commentators have, seen, have shown that this psalm is about the progress of the Christian life, a summary of the Christian life, from, tomb, excuse me, from womb to tomb or from cradle to grave, from the entrance into the world to the exit from the world, and that he is with you. He is with you. Through all of it. Verses 1 and 2 speak about childhood, that children need protection and provision, and so God loves you and watches over you, and he's your shepherd, that you lack nothing. In verse 3, it speaks of youth. We need direction and discipline and leading. Leading on the paths of righteousness. In verse 4 and 5, talk about the middle and the late years as you approach the, the valley of the shadow of death. And finally, verse 6 speaks about the final end of your life. And it ends not with death, but with life. It ends with an eternal home. That goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And in the end, you won't go into mere oblivion without 
eyes or teeth or taste. You're going to the house of the Lord. In fact, that's not only the point of this psalm. Even the book of the, the, the entire Bible ends with Revelation. And Revelation 7 says, verse 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's how it ends. That's how the story ends. For every one of God's sheep. It doesn't end in oblivion. So is the Lord your shepherd? Do you know him as your shepherd? Can you call him your shepherd? Have you trusted in him as your shepherd? He is the only one who will lead you from the very beginning until our final destiny. So let's hope in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a shepherd, that you're committed to knowing us, to feeding us, to leading us, to protecting us. We thank you that you know our every need. We thank you that you give us not everything we desire, but everything that we really need. We don't know the way that we should go in life. We often want things that are not good for us. We often think we know exactly what will happen or should happen in life, and yet you know what is best. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. We thank you that he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. We thank you that we have nothing to fear. And we pray for each and every one of us that you would be at work in our own hearts and lives, conquering the fears and the anxieties, teaching us to trust in you as your sheep. May we find comfort. May we find rest and nourishment for our souls. We, th- we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.